Welcome to another episode of Wise the Dome TV. Today, I have a very, very special guest. Uh, you've seen him on here before. I'm a huge fan of his work. Uh, he's one of the uh, most prolific authors and scholars of our time. It's always an honor to speak with him and have him on. Uh, Dr. Gerald Horn, thank you for coming through. Thank you for inviting me. Awesome, awesome, awesome. So today for the uh, audience, we're going to be uh, dealing with uh, a lot of the topics from this book, Acknowledging Radical Histories, um, Conversations with Gerald Horn, um, from, by Gerald Horn and Chris Tom Steele. And so, yeah, everybody definitely go and get that book. Um, and that book will also introduce you to other books that he's written. So it's, it's definitely a must read. Um, and so let's start uh, with one of the um, ideas you talked about in the beginning of the book. Well, actually, no, before we do that, with what's going on in Palestine, right? Um, I've seen a lot of uh, discourse about, hey, you know, as African people, um, this doesn't really have anything to do with us. And it seemingly ignoring the history of, uh, you know, black solidarity, solidarity with Palestinian liberation movements. Um, if you can, can you talk about some of the history of that? Well, First of all, it's, it's our tax dollars that are helping to subsidize mm. this genocide that's going on in, in Gaza. Mm -hmm. Israel is a country with about uh, 7 million Jewish people and about 20% uh, of its 9 million population is of Palestinian origin. Then it's trying to rule in a colonizing manner about uh, 3 to 5 million other Palestinians in Gaza and the West Bank. It would not be able to do that but for U.S. government mm. sending weapons to Israel, including rifles that have been used by settlers, Jewish settlers on Palestinian territory as we speak. In fact, the Israeli war cabinet has just announced that they're fighting on seven fronts now, which is quite incredible. Wow. Usually you don't want to fight on two fronts. They're right. fighting. <laughs> I'm not even sure if I can recount. Let's see. Gaza, West Bank, Yemen, Syria, Iraq, Iran, that's six, I'm missing seven. But in any case, your tax dollars and my tax dollars are subsidizing uh, this genocide. Uh, second of all, you mentioned the historic solidarity uh, between Black Americans and Palestinians. It has a lengthy history, including, of course, the Black Panther Party, including the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, under the leadership, particularly of the man once known as Stokely Carmichael, uh, Kwame Ture. And uh, that has a lengthening legacy. And if you look at my book on the 16th century, I begin the book by talking about this transition in European history from religion to race. That is to say, what basically happens mm -hmm is that uh, uh, these so-called Christian nations on the fringes of Europe, uh, speaking of Britain in the first instance, which of course crossed the Atlantic to liquidate the indigenous population and then bring enslaved Africans over to work for free, that uh, London had expelled this Jewish population at the end of the 13th century. But by the 16th century, when settler colonialism was getting underway in North America, uh, London had opted for the Protestant faith in the 1530s, recalled that Martin Luther 
not Martin Luther King, but Martin Luther <laughs> of Germany, uh, had broken away from the Catholic Church circa 1517. And about uh, 13 to 20 years later, it had taken London by storm. But that leads to these religious wars, uh, particularly between the so-called Catholic powers and the so-called Protestant powers, the Catholic powers being principally Spain and Portugal. So what happens is that England, uh, under the gun, decides to make the historic compromise and welcome Jewish people who were fleeing from Spain and Portugal uh, into London. And what happens, as I say in the first few pages of that book, which I recommend to the attention of your audience, you see this transition from religion to race. Many of the tropes, the negative tropes that had been affixed to Jewish people in terms of supposedly they have a special odor, they have tails uh, coming out of their behinds, uh, <laughs> you don't want to marry them, uh, there are certain occupations that they're barred from. All of those negative tropes were originally affixed to Jewish people, but in the transition of settler colonialism under the English and then the British, they're affixed to us. So there's an intimate connection uh, between uh, what has befallen uh, Black people and the fate of the Jewish population. And that brings us to the fact that when Israel is created, uh, circa 1947-1948, it's backed by U.S. imperialism. Right. Uh, that's how it, it, it's able to get off the ground. And I think it would be ironic indeed if in 2023-2024, you see the imminent and accelerating decline of U.S. imperialism, not least triggered by this conflict in Gaza, because U.S. imperialism is taking a reputational beating as a result of vetoing these resolutions that the United Nations that seek to stop the slaughter in Gaza, and that is propelling forward the China-Russia or BRICS alliance, Brazil, Russia, India, China, South Africa. So it would be almost symmetrical that the process that began in the 16th century, whereby uh, the English made a historic compromise with the Jewish population after expelling the Jewish po population of, a few centuries earlier, now comes to a screeching halt and decline as a result of then backing the creation of the state of Israel, 1947-1948, which led to a catastrophe for the indigenous Palestinian population. Right. And so that, that's what I think those folks that you made reference to who have some doubts perhaps about whether or not we should get involved, that's what they should think about. And, and another thing too, that this conflict could trigger World War III. Right. I mean, they're, they're U.S. battleships in the Mediterranean Sea, they're threatening to attack Iran, which was one of the nations mentioned by the war cabinet in Israel, being one of the nations in this seven-nation front that supposedly <laughs> is confronting uh, Israel. And so uh, the last time I looked, uh, there is not a, you recall the neutron bomb, which right. destroys people and leaves buildings intact, that comes out uh, under the Reagan administration. Well, I'm not familiar with a, a sort of a black neutron bomb that kills <laughs> right. everybody except black people. <laughs> right, right, so, right. I, I don't think that exists. And so if you're just simply concerned about your own survival or alternatively the survival of your children, 
and family, uh, you should be concerned with this conflict. Absolutely. Absolutely. And what are you, you kind of mentioned it a little bit um, in your answer, but what are your what are your thoughts on this PR hit that American imperialism is taking with, you know, everything that's going on uh, with the uh, genocide in Palestine? Because you see that um, globally and domestically, people are like, yo, this isn't right. And this idea of of American exceptionalism, exceptionalism seems to be crumbling by the day. Um, what, what are your thoughts on that? Well, you are absolutely correct. I mean, there's been severe reputational damage for U.S. imperialism because, let's face it, uh, there would have been a resolution in the United Nations uh, calling for a ceasefire, but for the U.S. government uh, vetoing these resolutions. I should also say, for those who say that there should not be uh, Black Americans interested in this conflict, you may not be interested in this conflict, but this conflict is interested in you. Hmm. What I mean by that is that the Zionist lobby, the Israeli lobby, has sworn to defeat a number of Black American members of Congress who they feel are not necessarily on board with regard to supporting Israel. I'm thinking of Andre Carson of Indiana, who happens to be a Muslim, Summer Lee of Western Pennsylvania, uh, Cory Bush of St. Louis. These are all Black members of the Congressional Black Caucus, uh, Ilhan Omar, who happens to be of Somali origin from mm-hmm. Minnesota. So in other words, instead of Black voters picking your elected representatives, the Zionist lobby says that they're going to pick our elected <laughs> right. And didn't they, try so, to get, didn't they try to get Hill Harper to run against um, Rashida right. Tlaib? Yeah, they dangled $20 million <laughs> right. uh, before him. And, you know, I've been on program <laughs> previously and I'm afraid to say that some of the brothers and sisters said if they'd offered me $20 million, I would have taken the money and run. Uh, man, see? <laughs> see? <laughs> see, that's the problem. <laughs> so, 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 as I said, I mean, this is this is a very serious conflict. And um, as we speak, uh, today being December 27th, the conflict continues. Uh, although Israel says that its goal is to destroy Hamas. They have not done so after fighting since October 7th, October 8th. And uh, of course, they suffered numerous casualties. There have also been credible reports about U.S. nationals uh, flooding into uh, Israel to fight on behalf of the Israelis. And in fact, uh, some of the scenes that I've witnessed uh, from Israel and the occupied territories, West Bank in particular, it reminds me of scenes I saw in the latter stages of the overthrow of white supremacy in Rhodesia and apartheid South Africa. Particularly the scene of settlers having rifles slung over their shoulders. Uh, that, that, That particular image is proliferating coming out of Israel. It could have been uh, Rhodesia or Zimbabwe in 1979. It could have been apartheid South Africa in 1993. So, um, and and I should also mention that one of the most aggressive nations seeking to bring Israel to heel has been South Africa, because there's a long memory in South Africa of Israeli collaboration with the apartheid authorities, up to and including nuclear collaboration, by the way. Uh, It's no accident that uh, 
Israel has been dubbed an apartheid state, for example. As a matter of fact, uh, to give you one example of the apartheid, uh, imagine you being in Durham, North Carolina, and you had a special license plate that said you couldn't go on, I think, as I recall, it's I-85, for example. Mm -hmm. Uh, but you had to take 40. Hmm. 40. Uh, well, that's the sort of system of apartheid that exists between Israel and the occupied territories. Wow. I mean, you know, we talk about a two-state solution, which I think we may be beyond that. But basically, we, we have a two-plate solution, <laughs> two license plates. <laughs> One license plate, you're on a superhighway. Another license plate, you're on a pockmarked pothole written road. Mm. Uh, that's life right now in apartheid Israel. Wow. Um, and, you know, speaking of settler colonialism uh, within the book, Acknowledging uh, Radical Histories, um, you, you know, were, you're advocating uh, a decolonized classroom and you stress the importance of uh, centering uh, slavery, indigenous genocide, and settler colonialism in U.S. history. Um, how do you envision this approach transforming the understanding of American history? Well, obviously, it would be moving away from these romanticized fairy tales <laughs> right. that are routinely taught in our schools today. That is to say, you had this grand revolt in 1776 by these white-wigged Euro-American men who walked on water. <laughs> Disproportionate percentage of them being slave owners, by the way, mm -hmm. including George Washington, Thomas Jefferson, Patrick Henry, et al. And a footnote, you may want to question how could a so-called grand revolution led by slave owners be anything but bad news for people of African descent. Right. And that's one of the things that I think is going to be a struggle in teaching going forward. Uh, because uh, as you know, the right wing of this country, uh, they're up in arms about what they call critical race theory, although they don't know what that, that means. It's just a buzzword. But what, what it basically means in practice is that they don't want an accurate history taught about this country. Elon Musk, repute, reputedly the richest man in the United States, of course, his roots are in apartheid South Africa, as you right. probably know. Uh, he talks about what he calls the, quote, woke mind virus. Hmm. There was an article in the Wall Street Journal the other day, which obviously is a pro-business paper. They asked him to define it. He couldn't even define it. But we, we know what it means. What it means is that he does not want an accurate or adequate history taught to our children about slavery, about how the country was built on the backs of enslaved Africans, kidnapped labor, or as some have had it, uh, stolen people working on stolen land to make wealth for a small circle of Europeans, for example. And if there were any justice, there would be yellow police tape around the borders of the United States. Because this is this is one massive crime scene. <laughs> right, right. Uh, the problem, of course, is that with regard to this crime scene, 
The perpetrators have yet to be detained, arrested, and brought to justice. And if those in Raleigh and many of those in Washington, D.C. have their way, they'll never be brought to justice. But I'm confident that they will be uh, because of shows like yours and individuals like yourself. Man, thank you. That's a that's a high honor. I definitely appreciate you. Um, you uh, you know mentioned also that settler colonial uh, the settler colonial project that we call America is an example of class collaboration. Mm-hmm. Um, and I love this idea, um, especially whenever you look at the Confederacy and how many of them weren't you know they they couldn't afford to uh, uh, participate in our enslavement, but just the idea that one day they'll be able to was enough for them to fight for the right to own us as property. Um, if you can, can you expand, expound on the idea that um, America is an example of, uh, you know, European class collaboration? Well, you mentioned the uh, Civil War, 1861 mm-hmm. to 1865, the so-called Confederate States of America, which of course included North Carolina. Right. They seek to break away from the United States because they wanted to perpetuate the enslavement of Africans forevermore. As your comment suggests, uh, a disproportionate percentage of the Euro-American men who are fighting to preserve slavery actually weren't slave owners. Mm. But they thought that the pot of gold at the end of the rainbow, if they won that war, would be that they would have the right as well to own enslaved Africans. And that was worth fighting for. However, as my book on the 16th century suggests, if you go back to the first incursion, the first invasion of the English uh, into what they call North Carolina, because even though we talk about Virginia in 1607, actually in the 1580s, there had been an attempt uh, to build a settlement in the coast of what is now North Carolina. And if you look at the class lineup, of these folks, they are coming from various class backgrounds. Mm. They're shopkeepers, they're poor, they're lumpen elements, lumpen elements meaning, you know, prostitutes, thieves, uh, etc. And all sponsored by the 1%. But the I, the 1% in London, that is mm-hmm. the, the investor class. And that's what I mean by class collaboration. You have people from different classes who are collaborating with one another for a mutual benefit, the mutual benefit being uh, taking the land of the indigenous population. And with a little bit of luck and a lot of pluck, they'd be able to get Africans to work for free. (laughs) Now, what's interesting about this idea of class collaboration is that uh, you cannot begin to understand the United States even today without understanding class collaboration. How else can you ex- understand the Trump coalition? Right. 74, 75 million strong. It's mathematically imprecise to suggest that in a country of 330 million like this, that only the 1% constitutes 74 to 75 million. That, that math does not add up. Uh, Obviously, as we all know, there are a considerable number of working class people in the Trump coalition, middle class people in the Trump coalition. And that's the nature of settler colonialism. Because the idea historically has been that there are antagonisms 
between certain classes. For example, landlords and tenants. Uh, the landlord wants to raise the rent. The tenant wants to keep the rent flat or even have it go down. That's an antagonistic contradiction that leads to a class struggle between landlords and tenants. Likewise, if you're working at a factory, the boss is trying to drive down your wages so he can make more profit. You want your wages to rise so that you can buy toys for your kids and books for your kids, et cetera. Theoretically, that's an antagonistic contradiction. But what happens under settler colonialism is that uh, the, the bosses and the European workers oftentimes collaborate. Right. Because, uh, they see a mutual advantage in terms of uh, taking the land from the Native Americans. And this brings me back to what I was talking about a few moments ago, uh, how many of our friends on the left have misinterpreted U.S. history. To give you one example amongst many, I gave you an example of the Jewish question and how it has manifested with regard to the building of settler colonialism, because Jewish people were in on the ground floor with regard to building settler colonialism here in North America, unlike in Spain, where the Catholics engaged in an inquisition with regard to the Jewish people. That is to say, you had to convert to Catholicism or flee, which many of them did, to London, to Turkey, Turkey, or you're tortured until you say, I'm Catholic, <laughs> or you're executed. Right. Whereas England took a different route, and it said, no, you can get in on the ground floor, and that, of course, leads directly fast forward to 1947, 1948, when the United States backs the creation of State of Israel, or to 2023, when the United States is still uh, supporting Israeli genocide. Now, our friends on the left, this is the mistake they make. They look at how Jewish people have been treated, say, in Germany, for example, where there was a Holocaust, six million people executed, 1941, actually 1933 to 1945. And also you had a similar process unfolding in the Netherlands, in France, in Croatia, in Greece, in Bulgaria, etc., and so they say, "Oh, okay." I, United States is a progressive country because, unlike <laughs> in Europe, the Jewish people here were not subjected to a Holocaust. They forget the next step, which is that the, the Jewish people were in on the ground floor with regard to the expropriation of the, the indigenous population, mm, right, and the enslavement of the Africans. The number two official or number three official in the Confederate States of America, Judah Benjamin, J-U-D-A-H, Benjamin, Secretary of State under President Jefferson Davis, the head of the Confederate States of America. He manages to flee. He, he happens to be Jewish, by the way, which is why I mentioned him. Or if you look at Florida, uh, David Uley, Y-U-L-E-E, -E, Jewish American, a leading figure in uh, the Sunshine State. And so Jewish people were involved in this project of settler colonialism. That's one of the reasons they were subjected to a Holocaust. Now, to be sure, uh, there were bumps along the road because, uh, for example, um, due south from where you're sitting in Atlanta, uh, you may want to consult 
look up the Leo Frank case. He okay. was a Jewish man in Georgia who was lynched uh, because many backwards Euro-American Christians said that he was killing Christian girls so that he could drink their blood, believe wow. it or not, he's a vampire. Wow. They lynched him. And what's interesting about the Leo Frank case in particular, and, and I must say, uh, for your scholars in the audience, uh, an adequate book has yet to be written about this case, is that, <laughs> so Leo Frank tried to blame the killing of the Christian girl, circa 1915, Mary Fagan, on the black janitor. Wow. And what's interesting <laughs> is that the racist Euro-American Christians they believe the black janitor over the Jewish man, interestingly enough. Wow. It's, it's, it's very deep. It's very yeah. interesting. And what happens with the lynching of Leo Frank, that leads to many affluent Jewish Americans beginning to fund anti-lynching movements mm -hmm. because they recognize that they could be lynched too. And that's a step forward in terms of a blow against lynching uh, in this country. But to make a... a, a a lengthy story shorter, uh, class collaboration has been the essence of this settler state known as the United States of America. Not only do you see it in the Trump coalition, you saw it on January 6, 2020, mm -hmm. uh, with the attempt to prevent the peaceful transfer of power and make sure that Trump continues on. Uh, if you look at the class lineup of those who were arrested on January 6, you have people coming in on private planes, for example, wow. you have uh, shopkeepers, you have uh, military veterans, you have cops, you have working class people, D-class elements, lumpen elements, once again. And so it's a very diverse class array, almost all of whom were of European descent, needless to say, mm -hmm. although uh, there are a couple of Negroes yeah. <laughs> as well, which is not surprising because uh, I, I think that going forward to this 2024 election, many Black people understandably are very nervous about what's going to happen. And so many Black people said, maybe I need to cut a deal. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> survive this madness, which I totally understand. But uh, we'll see what happens. Yeah, indeed, indeed. Um, one, uh, one of the ideas also in this book that I uh, appreciated um, because it was, you know, the idea when Kanye went on his famous TMZ rant that right. uh, slavery was a choice. And obviously it made a lot of people angry. Um, and uh, especially coming from someone who admittedly does not read. Um, <laughs> uh, but you stated that the concept of slavery is a choice is based on the idea that Africans were passive. Um, can you talk about African rebellion and how Africans were indeed not passive when it came to fighting the institution of slavery? Well, first of all, a footnote, a footnote with regard to Ye. Uh, his children are half Armenian. Mm -hmm. Armenian, uh, the Kardashians, of course, are a partial Armenian descent. Armenia was subjected to a genocide, actually mm. about the same time as the Leo Frank case, at wow. the hands of the Turks, uh, liquidated, almost wiped out. I doubt 
if Ye would say that that was a choice. Right, the right, the right. Because uh, he's, he's actually visited Armini when he was married to Kim, for example. So it was a particular insult that he made to his family <laughs> yeah. and to us. Mm-hmm. And, you know, if he were to be consistent, if he would say slavery was a choice or many genocide was a choice, at least he'd be consistent. Right. No, he's, he's inconsistent. Right. Now, <laughs> uh, with regard to rebelliousness, you cannot understand the history of what's called the Atlantic world. That is to say, North America, the Caribbean, Western Europe, without understanding rebelliousness of Africans. What do I mean by that? Well, if you look at the so-called Glorious Revolution uh, in England, 1688, what basically happens is that to begin with, the African slave trade was under the thumb of the money. And so many of the merchants, the merchant class, they feel that that's unfair. They want in on the action because the African slave trade was one of the most lucrative enterprises known to humankind. You can invest $1 and get $1,700 back. I mean, there are those today who would sell their firstborn (laughs) for a 1,700% profit, let alone some African they did not know. So that revolution basically was a revolution, a revolt of the merchants against the monarch. Mm. They cut the wings of the monarch, leading to what we have today, where King Charles, as he is called, uh, supposedly is ruling the country and he's very wealthy, uh, but uh, he is not necessarily the most important political figure in 2023, although he was in 1687 up to the glorious revolution. So what happens when the merchants enter the slave trade, the slave trade takes off like a rocket because it's not just one merchant who's trying to monopolize the slave trade. You have uh, numerous merchants who descend upon Africa with the maniacal energy of crazed bees, manacling every African in sight, dragging them across the Atlantic, particularly to the Caribbean, Jamaica, in particular, Barbados in particular. Mm -hmm. But what happens is that the numbers, the ratios uh, favor the Africans. They outnumber the Europeans sometimes at a rate of 10 to 1, 20 to 1. That creates fertile conditions for rebelliousness and revolt. And so what you see is that at that point, you begin to see Europeans making the great trek to the North American mainland. Mm -hmm. Historically, South Carolina was a twin of Barbados, for example. And there in the North American mainland, particularly in South Carolina, uh, they could have a more favorable ratio. But that did not necessarily mean the end of slave rebelliousness. You had a rebellion in New York, 1712. As a matter of fact, uh, I've just uh, written a book that will be published next year. Oh, wow. Uh, armed struggle in 20th century United States. And one of the points of advice that uh, I make to those who might want to consider that enterprise in the <laughs> 21st century is that if you're really serious, you don't make the mistake of the people in the 20th century because Quebec, French-speaking Canada, 
was essential to the revolt of the enslaved in 1712 in New York City. And I dare say that if people want to launch armed struggle, they would not only in the 21st century require the assistance of our Cuban comrades, mm -hmm. 90 miles from Florida, they will also need the assistance of our Quebec friends due north of New York City. There was another revolt of the enslaved in New York in 1741. Stoner's Revolt in South Carolina, 1739, perhaps the bloodiest revolt uh, in colonial North America. Um, and in fact, the revolt of the Africans leads directly to 1776, wow. because what happens is that London, the colonial power, decides to raise taxes on the settlers so that they could wage a war against the French in Quebec, who they defeat, and the Spanish in Cuba, who they defeat. Because because the, in the Stonos Revolt 1739, it was assisted by the Spanish mm -hmm. in Cuba and Florida. Right. Of course, uh, it should not come as a surprise that people who exist upon the free labor of Africans don't want to pay taxes. They don't <laughs> want taxes today. And so taxes becomes a reason for their revolt against London, setting up the United States of America post-1776. But the revolt of the enslaved continues. Uh, look at the War of 1812, for example. I talk about this in my book, Negro Comrades of the Crown. Here you have the British invade Washington, D.C., burn down the White House. The enslaved Africans join the British in doing so, and then escape on British vessels to Trinidad and Tobago, where their descendants continue to reside. Or look at uh, the Great Dismal Swamp, which incorporates part of North Carolina, north of where you are, mm -hmm. to Southern Virginia. There you have African Maroons, Black mm -hmm. Maroons. They'd escaped the entire jurisdiction of the enslavers. And there's evidence to suggest that when you have Nat's Turner Slave Revolt in Southampton, uh, Virginia, 1831, that the Maroons in the Great Dismal Swamp are essential to that process, not to mention the so-called free Negroes who mm. helped the uh, Nat Turner rebels. So, I mean, I could go on in this vein. Right, right. I mean, I, I think what happens is that people oftentimes talk without knowing what they're talking about. I right. Mean, oh, that, ha that happens. Uh, yeah, that happens extremely often. <laughs> oh, there you are. No, yeah. Okay, sorry. No problem, no problem. Um, it it kind of leads me to a question I wanted to ask you. Um there's a, in my opinion, an anti-intellectual movement happening within our own community that is striving to delineate themselves from the rest of the diaspora and the continent of Africa in the hopes of America finally fulfilling its promise to Africans here, uh, which I don't ever see that happening. But they, it's it's created a lot of in a lot of cases, disrespectful discourse about who we are and our history. And one thing they like to say is, uh, you know, I'm not African. Africans sold us, um, which in my opinion, <laughs> right, it lacks so much nuance and context. It's crazy. But can you speak on that idea that, you know, we should we should want to delineate ourselves because of you because 
you've been told about, no first off let's not even the delineation part just the idea that africans are responsible for the transatlantic slave trade um which i find a problematic idea i mean if you can just expound on that some well first of all black americans who are 13% of this United States of America, which is 330 million people, uh, we need all the help we can get. Right. Um, we cannot afford to turn away any potential allies. Uh, and if you look at the history uh, of our struggles, which I've spent a lifetime writing about, you'll find that we've been able to get to where we are today because of assistance from the international community. That in our own struggles has led to where we are today. I'm thinking of the Haitian Revolution. I'm thinking of abolitionism in Britain. I'm thinking of the rise of socialist countries in the 20th century. I'm thinking of the Cuban Revolution, et, et cetera. That's point number one. Point number two is that I think with regard to the African slave trade, you need to realize that slavery is a socioeconomic formation that every ethnic group or so-called race has endured. There has been slavery in Europe. There's been slavery in Asia. There's been slavery in Africa. What happens is that with the rise of settler colonialism, which we spent a few moments talking about uh, at the top of this program, you see the rise of an African slave trade that in many ways is distinctive from the slavery that other peoples globally have endured. One, it's racialized. That is to say, it's an attempt to delimit it to the indigenous. As a matter of fact, uh, more scholars are writing about indigenous slavery. Mm. Except what, what happens with the indigenous slavery is that the settlers sell them overseas. Right, now, right. Uh, you can find indigenous DNA in Europe. You can find it all over the world because they were selling slave markets in Turkey, for example, in particular. So what distinguishes this enslavement process that ensnares our ancestors is that there's an attempt to delimit slavery on a racial basis and also to make it plain that uh, we were little more than akin to cows and horses and donkeys, for example, which is different from other kinds of slavery. For me, for example, if you look at the enslavement in Saudi Arabia, which exists, existed quite frankly, well into the 20th century, mostly involving darker skinned people, but they're able to rise on the class ladder. I mean, if, if people in your audience uh, look up Prince Bandar, B-A-N-D-A-R, who was the Saudi ambassador to the United States uh, during the George W. Bush years, uh, they used to call him Bandar Bush. Mm. He's a man of African descent. I mean, he may be a little darker than you. Uh, he he uh, um, His favorite football team was the Dallas Cowboys. His <laughs> private plane was painted in the colors of silver and blue. Wow. <laughs> right. And now, in other words, the kind of slavery that ensnared our ancestors was qualitatively different 
and other kinds of slavery, for example. Now, having said that, uh, yes, there was a complicity of certain Negroes. I mean, you know, we just talked a few moments ago about pro-Trump Negroes. Right. So it should be surprised that you had the ancestors of Trump pro-Trump Negroes. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> who were complicit in the African slave trade. Right, right. So um, <laughs> that did not come as a, as a big shock and surprise. But at the same time, uh, this is a process that's ignited in Western Europe. Mm -hmm. This process of dehumanization, of so-called chattel slavery, of attempting to delimit the enslavement to African people because uh, it was felt we arrived here in North America, our color was distinctive, which made it difficult for us to run away, mm -hmm. for example. I mean, in, in my 1776 book, I talk about the attempt by James Oglethorpe, who is given credit for being the founder of the settlement in Georgia. His first idea was no Negroes allowed in <laughs> Georgia, which wow. obviously didn't work. Right. <laughs> with the 2010 census, Georgia had more Negroes than any other state in the Union. I think that changed by 2020. Now it's uh, Texas. But in any case, he wanted it to be poor Europeans who work in the fields. The problem was, of course, that they could run away and not necessarily be detected so easily. And then second of all, they felt there was a, a gathering opinion that by exploiting poor Europeans, that the 1% was creating class tensions and contradictions that were explosive. Mm. And so by say, Georgia as a settlement starts in the early 1730s, by the 1750s, you have a, a sizable number of Africans, despite the fact that there were not supposed to be Africans allowed in Georgia. Right, right. So in, in other words, uh, those who tried to point the finger of accusation at Black people for our plight, it's like Kanye West. I mean, you, you're trying to deflect attention mm. from the real perpetrators and the real criminals uh, whose rest in London uh, who rest in Charleston, South Carolina, uh, who rested in Durham, North Carolina. Right, right. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, next question I wanted to ask you about uh, was uh, Shirley Graham Du Bois, the wife of uh, W.E.B. Du Bois. I'm currently reading um, W.E.B. Du Bois, The Education of Black People, 10 Critiques, 1906 to 1960, by the way. Um, she was a powerful anti-colonist scholar and revolutionary. Um, if you can, tell us about who she was and why she was so important to the movement. So Shirley Graham Du Bois was born at the at the end of the 19th century, beginning of the 20th century. Actually, she was born in 1896, but for various reasons having to do with male supremacy, she cut 10 years off of her mm -hmm. age and said mm -hmm. that she was born in 1906. <laughs> but in any case, her father was a pastor, an itinerant preacher, so they moved around a lot. She managed to uh, learn French. She was a multilingual woman. Uh, she had children at an early age, but fundamentally, she left her children with her parents. 
so that she could go to France by the 1920s. Coming back, she enrolls in Oberlin College in Ohio uh, and then to Yale School of Drama. She becomes a leading Black woman playwright and writer. Uh, she works with the NAACP when it had its great spurt in membership in the early 1940s. Its membership went from 40,000 to 400,000. It's hardly gone beyond 400,000 today. You can uh, thank Shirley Graham Du Bois for that. And then with the end of World War II, uh, she begins writing biographies. Mm. She writes a biography of great Paul Robeson, for example, amongst others. All the while, uh, she is quite friendly with W.E.B. Du Bois, born in 1868, passing away in 1963, oftentimes viewed as a founding father of the Pan-African idea, a founder of the NAACP circa 1909. So they marry after Du Bois's first wife passes away. But what happens is that Shirley Graham Du Bois is also a revolutionary, as you suggest. Uh, there are those who suggest that she pushes Du Bois further to the left. Wow. Um, and uh, she, of course, was a member of the Communist Party mm -hmm. well before Du Bois was. And what happens is that she stands by him when he's indicted at the age of 83 in 1950, 1951, he's indicted for being supposedly the agent of a foreign power because he's leading a campaign against nuclear weapons. Recall that nuclear weapons are these awesome weapons only used once so far right. in Japan, 1945, August. 70,000 people killed just like that with uh, people still suffering as a result of the radiation that spread even to this very day. And so the U.S. government charged that by coming out against nuclear weapons, W.E.B. Du Bois was acting as an agent for the Soviet Union. Wow. And he <laughs> barely escaped being jailed at the age of 83. So what happens is that uh, in the 1950s, they're living in Brooklyn. They are oftentimes shunned by people who should have known better. Their passports are taken, so they can't leave the United States. But finally, their passports are returned. And so in 1961, they moved to Ghana under Kwame Nkrumah. Mm -hmm. uh, W.E.B. Du Bois is supposed to uh, develop this Encyclopedia Africana. Shirley Graham Du Bois is going to become the director of television. Her idea was not to have television as the boob tube, which it is today, but to put television monitors in villages so that it becomes a source for education, mm. more so than a source for entertainment. Right. In any case, what happens is that uh, early 1960, Du Bois himself dies in 1963. She's widowed, still in Ghana. Then the government is overthrown as a result of the U.S. CIA. You had a Black American ambassador, by the way, Franklin Williams at that time, former NAACP official, likely complicit in the coup. Mm -hmm. Although we have not been able to determine that decisively. So with the coup, she moves to Cairo, Egypt. Uh, Cairo, 
Egypt was then under the rule of G.A. Nasser, a staunch critic of Zionism, a staunch supporter of the Palestinian cause. Uh, she basically uses Cairo as her base. And from there, travels. She spent, actually, she dies in China, wow. circa 1977. So, uh, Shirley Du Bois was, as you put it, a revolutionary, a writer, intellectual, dramatist, composer, musician. Absolutely. And uh, I have a lot of the old Freedom Ways work in my good. library as well and so you. um i uh so we have we have 10 minutes uh but I, I i really wanted to talk about this because um and i'm glad we have a few minutes to to build on it um you've written a great book called jazz and justice mm -hmm. um um you know also have uh miri baraka's uh blues people um, and there's also a book I have called Black Nationalism and the Revolution of Music. Mm -hmm. um, can you talk about the connection between jazz and anti-fascism, right? Because I think a lot of people may not understand that history just simply because in a, lot, a lot of jazz music has no vocals. It has, it's, it's just it's people playing instruments, right? It, mm -hmm. um, you know, uh, with a level of improv improvisation and things of that nature. Um, so a lot of people may not understand uh, the connection between jazz and anti-fascism and, and you know, anti-white supremacy and things of that nature. And if you can, uh, I would like for, for you to expound some on that. So first of all, this music we call jazz develops at the end of the 19th century. There's some contestation as to the roots of this music. Most of it, most analysts put it in New Orleans. For I'm example. square. Right. Mm -hmm. And that's a credible analysis. But you can also see this music arising in various parts uh, of this hemisphere, not only uh, in, um, say, for example, in Cuba, for example, which pre-socialism, uh, has a very fertile jazz tradition. So first of all, th this is, is a, music, uh, a music that develops in opposition to white supremacy, not least because the musicians are being exploited. They're being exploited shamelessly uh, by record labels, by club owners. And in fact, as I talk about in my book, many of the musicians have to confront organized crime, for mm -hmm. example because organized crime has been a silent partner in the music industry today, up to and including uh, hip hop and rap. Right. Right. Mm -hmm. Anybody who does an honest evaluation of that branch of music will have to do an analysis of organized crime, for example. So that helps to engender a certain uh, progressivism within the music uh, that leads to many of the leading musicians uh, in the late 1940s, for example, being sympathetic to Paul Robeson, a great singer, actor, political activist, revolutionary, who comes under attack by the U.S. government. And of course, uh, he is supported by a, a number of musicians. You should also know that many of these musicians, they try to break away from domination of organized crime, either by starting their own record labels, for example, Charles Mingus. Mm. 
the great bassist with roots in Los Angeles. You may be familiar with his signature tune, Haitian Fight Song. Absolutely. Which is an ode to the Haitian Revolution, something we all should pay homage to because the Haitian Revolution had a lot to do with the freedom of Black people on this soil. So he and Max Roach, a drummer, who, by the way, had roots not only in Barbados, but in the Great Dismal Swamp. Right. The Maroon Territory of Northern North Carolina and Southern of Virginia. They tried to develop an alternative to the exploitation of organized crime record labels. But the problem there is that if you look at a musician like John Coltrane or other, I, I just plucked his name out of the air because that's a name people are familiar with. So many of these musicians, they, they, they practice their art 15 to 16 hours a day. Mm. That's why they're so excellent. Right. That's why they're such craftsmen. But it's not easy to practice your art 16 hours a day and then run a business. <laughs> you have to sleep at, <laughs> right. at some point. So uh, that that's what befell Mingus and Max. But also, if you look at their output, not only a Haitian fight song, but the Freedom Now Sweet, mm. Max Roach, for example. We insist from Max Roach also. Yeah, there, also. there you go. There you go. Uh, so these musicians, at least the ones uh, that I write about in my book, Jazz and Justice, uh, they're struggling against white supremacy. They're struggling against capitalism. Uh, they're struggling against fascism. And uh, that's why they deserve our support and respect. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, Dr. Gerald Horn, like I said in the beginning of the show, um, it's always an honor and a pleasure to have you on. Um, we appreciate the work um, that you have done and continue to do. And um, we salute you. And again, um, thank you for coming on the show. Thank you for inviting me. In, indeed. You have a you have a great evening. Oh, send me the link, too. Oh, yeah, I, most definitely. I, I got you. I'll, I'll send you the link um, as soon as I publish it. Right on. All Good right. luck to you. Thank you. You too. Bye-bye.